Hello, I'm Gavin Giovannoni, and I'm doing this uh, MSLP podcast in response to a, a, I think, a very important publication that came out yesterday in Nature, uh, and in response to an email I received from a, uh, a patient yesterday afternoon. This particular patient um, says as he has recently been diagnosed with secondary progressive multiple sclerosis, and he was about to transition from dimethyl fumarate to saponamide, which is mazant. And he was simply waiting for genetic tests to come back to see if he could take the drug. And the question he asked is, do, this, do the findings in this particular study um, suggest that his saponamide may not work? In other words, if he has these uh, uh, so-called genetic variants that are associated with a worse MS outcome, will they nullify the effects of saponamide? So that's the context um, now, just to say to you that this observation that subtle genetic variations in your own genome are associated with MS severity will, will not come as a surprise. You know, as humans, like all forms of life, we are literally biological machines and we run off genetic algorithms that are encoded in our genomes. You know, we just code. Um, and everybody has subtle differences uh, in these genetic algorithms, <clears throat> and, the, and these uh, differences come from uh, mutations that uh, occur in our uh, genomes. When they typically occur when DNA is copied and mixed up when sperm and, uh, and ova or eggs are, are formed in the ovaries. And then again, when you inherit your DNA half from each parent, uh, more complexity and mixing of the genetic codes uh, occur. Uh, so this is why um, we all are quite unique, and even identical twins um, are not quite the same. And the reason for that is, is that they are on top of the genetic code, which is the hardwired DNA sequence. We have epigenetic changes, these proteins or um, markers that affect how the genome is uh, works. Um, and so these epigenetic changes uh, augment or suppress certain certain genes, uh, and therefore, even in identical twins, because of different epigenetic uh, markers, the, the algorithms don't work in identical ways. <clears throat> now, what this paper shows, though, what the study shows is that people with multiple sclerosis who inherit one or two or possibly more variants uh, are likely to get worse more quickly than people who don't inherit these variants. Uh, and assuming if you've got mixed mixtures, in other words, you have um, you don't have two copies of the variant, but one copy um, of the bad variant and one copy of the good variant, you'll be intermediate. Um, and this is what happens ac across many diseases. I just take longevity for example. You know, longevity is uh, heritable and depends on multiple variants in our genome. And simply, many neurodegenerative diseases, your risk of getting them and what age you get them on are dictated by um, subtle variation in your genome. So this is, a not, this is not surprising, the, this finding. Now, these variants are called SNPs, uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms, and a single nucleotide means one single code uh, in the genome is changed. Um, and this represents a single variation in an area of the uh, genome. Now, it's not necessarily the actual variations that are, are themselves responsible for the more rapid worsening, but it could be the genes that are close to these vari variants in your genome. And these genes can occur upstream or downstream on the code. Um, <clears throat> and I've put a, 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 in the email or newsletter, I've put a, um, what they call a, 
uh, Manhattan plot, uh, just to show you the two variants that have been identified. Um, you know, you have to set very strict statistical rules to identify uh, which variants are relevant. Now, what is very interesting is that uh, when they when they looked at the genes close by, they they use an algorithm. It's called a gene prioritization uh, analysis, and identified um, four bi biologically plausible genes close to two different uh, SNPs or variants. And the one gene is I'm particularly excited about is called ZNF638. And this encodes a protein that actually binds to DNA, and it comes from a family of protein called DNA-binding zinc finger proteins. Now, this particular zinc finger protein uh, suppresses the reading of retroviral DNA in the genome. As you know, we inherited we inherit these uh, retroviruses that are inserted in our genome, um, and they do it via a complicated mechanism called the chromatin repressor. And this actually involves one of those things called an epigenetic change. It actually affects how the histones, how the because the DNA winds themselves around these little beads in our genome called histones, and if they are, if the histones are modified, it actually stops that gene being transcribed, you know, stops that gene being uh, read. <clears throat> yeah. Um, an analogy would be like your computer hard drive. You know, in, in, you can actually partition your hard drive into different sections, and you can actually partition one and create a secure vault that you can only access that part of your hard drive if you have the password. Which means that software that can't, uh, it doesn't have the necessary permissions, won't be able to read that section of your hard drive. And this is what a repressor does. Essentially, it closes down and stops a certain section of your uh, your DNA being read. <clears throat> Now, this may be very important in MS because, you know, human endogenous retroviruses, HERVs, we call them, and their expression, in other words, having their genes transcribed, are, uh, are linked to multiple sclerosis, and they're possibly one of the mechanisms that drive what I call smoldering MS. <clears throat> so one of the proteins from HERVs is the envelope protein, and this binds to a particular molecular pathway that upregulates inflammation that works via these things called toll-like receptors. So if you suppress HERVs and you stop that protein being transcribed, you may be able to impact on inflammatory events. You know, um, So this is really, really interesting, and I think more work needs to be done uh, on this. I think what is really lovely about this paper is the investigator showed that this ZNF638 is expressed in the brain, and it's particularly in oligodendrocytes and their precursor cells. And this would suggest, as you know, the oligodendrocyte is the cell responsible for making myelin. So this could be linked to, uh, you know, myelination or remyelination, and therefore be really, uh, very relevant to MS. This particular gene has been implicated in general intelligence and cognition, uh, and this another point that it may be relevant to its role in MS. Um, you know, and when they looked at expression of the gene in single cells, they found that oligodendrocyte clusters, these are the cells that produce oligodendrocytes, um, um, express this gene, uh, particularly uh, those that are actively myelinating. Uh, and so this, again, would support this gene as being really relevant to this particular variant. <clears throat> so I think this is a very good gene candidate. But clearly, more work will need to be done to determine, you know, if it is uh, the if if it is the gene involved in MS prognosis. They also discovered another gene, which is called the DISF, which encodes for a protein called dysferulin. This is a membrane protein, and its role is particularly been described in uh, skeletal muscle muscle, 
where it's responsible for helping with membrane repair and regeneration. Um, and there have been mutations in this gene that have been, have been found to cause muscular dystrophy. Again, this gene is also expressed in oligodendrocytes, the cells that make myelin, and in nerve cells. Uh, and it also accumulates in Alzheimer's disease, in the plaques in Alzheimer's disease. So it is involved in brain disease, we think. Uh, and so the proposal is that the spherulin maintains neuronal and glial membranes. And so therefore, you know, some uh, variation in this gene's function could influence neuroexonal survival. Uh, or, or even remyelination in multiple sclerosis. So again, a very good candidate gene for um, for uh, affecting prognosis. Um, then there was another site in the genome, uh, and there was a gene there called uh, DNM3, which stands for dynam 3 and this is a gene that uh, is important for create for the endocytosis, pulling back uh, synaptic vesicles. Again, this, is, uh, this gene is expressed in oligodendrocyte lineage uh, and neurons. Uh, and a closely related protein called DYNAM2 is involved again in maintaining skeletal muscle membrane. So this could be another way this particular gene works. In other words, it helps support membrane, uh, membrane function, uh, and therefore could be involved in uh, MS. And then there's the PIGC uh, gene that encodes for a, a protein called phosphate phosphatidyl inositol glycan C uh, and this particular uh, gene has had mutations described in it that has caused epilepsy and intellectual disability. So another gene that is linked to CNS function uh, where malfunctioning of that gene causes pro uh, problems. So you could imagine that subtle variation in its expression or function could uh, affect MS prognosis. So I think the work has opened up several new lines of research uh, that will hopefully lead to um, new therapeutic targets to tackle, you know, what I call the major unmet need in multiple sclerosis, smoldering-associated worsening or sore, which is largely independent of focal inflammatory disease activity. Now, the, the real question that you're all going to ask is, is uh, how strong is this link between these variants and worsening MS? Um, and I think the, the answer is it's not very strong. Um, so they do have a, me a meaningful association. And so when you, look, when you look at the time to get into EDSS-6, in other words, needing a walking, walking aid to walk 100 meters or more, people who carry two copies of the variants linked to the zinc finger and the dysferulin genes, um, they got to walking stick 3.7 years earlier than those who did not inherit the variants. So it's a, an average of, you need a walking stick 3.7 years earlier. Now for the other site linked to the Dynamin 3 and the PIG-C genes, um, this was 3.3 years. Now the magnitude of these effects is relatively small and is in the ballpark of the treatment effect on disability, uh, you know, with interferon beta first generation injectables. So this would nullify not necessarily nullify, but has a, you know, um, um, having the good variants has a similar effect to being on interferon. Um, I always like to remind you a better comparator may be the presence or absence of vascular comorbidities. So people with multiple sclerosis who have one or more vascular comorbidities, be it hypertension, diabetes, smoking, high cholesterol, abnormal lipids, or actually documented vascular disease, in other words, a previous 
heart attack or a stroke or peripheral vascular disease. They get to a walking stick EDSX6 approximately six years earlier. You know, it's around about 11 to 12 years compared to people with multiple sclerosis without a vascular comorbidity that get to EDSX6 at around 17 to 18 years. So the effect of these variants is about half um, of what the impact of a vascular comorbidity is on disability outcomes. So overall, it's quite small. And the authors um, predict that about 13% of the so-called variance in long-term MS severity may be attributed to common and low-frequency SNPs. <laughs> so I, I think overall, the, contribu- the, the contribution of genetic factors to uh, disability progression is probably relatively small. Um, but I think what's really important is that the, the genes linked to these variants are all expressed in the brain and spinal cord, so they are neuronal, you know, CNS-functioning uh, uh, genes, which differs from the so-called susceptibility genes that tend to be all present in immune cells. So th- there's a divergence here. You know, the heritability of worsening genes in terms of outcome are in the central nervous system and heritability of susceptibility genes are expressed in, in, in immune cells. And this is you know, compatible with our understanding of multiple sclerosis. The causes of MS is linked to inflammation, autoimmunity, and hence immune cells. And disability or severity genes are linked to the nervous system uh, and its resilience, in other words, the ability to uh, 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 cope with damage. I think what's important here is that... <clears throat> I think the impact of these resilience genes are probably downstream of the inflammatory events. And so if you prevent inflammation and you prevent the uh, initiating damage, those genes may not be relevant uh, to outcome at all. So what do these findings actually mean for people with multiple sclerosis? So I think at the moment, not very much. Um, you know, In the future, they may be incorporated into prognostic risk scores. So you may have a genetic test done and this will contribute to predicting outcome. Um, however, because these, the effect of these genes are downstream of damage, uh, you know, if you prevent the damage from occurring in the first place, for example, with uh, early highly effective therapies, then having them may, may make no difference. <clears throat> um, I do suspect that there'll be a flurry of research examining these variants um, in terms of uh, their function. And this will be done in cell cultures, neuronal and oligodendrocyte and remyelination cell cultures, and possibly numinized knockout or knock-in animal models. I suspect the images, people who work on MRI and PET, will now go back to their data sets and dichotomize their patients uh, into groups based on these variants, those who have them and those who don't, to see if these variants are associated with accelerated brain volume loss, slowly expanding lesions, the paramagnetic rim lesions, uh, also the TSPO. Uh, hot lesions on PET, uh, etc. You know, so this will be in, in uh, the next phase of research to see if these variants protect um, poor outcome on MRI. Uh, for those working uh, in soluble biomarkers, they'll obviously want to see if um, these variants are associated with higher neurofilament levels and other damage markers, for example, GFAP. Uh, people working uh, on the eye and MS will explore these variants uh, in terms of predicting retinal nerve fiber layer loss. As you know, there's this technique called optical um, coherence tomography um, where you actually look for um, the retinal nerve fibers and and the prediction will be these people who carry the the poor prognostic variants will have accelerated retinal nerve fiber loss and in longitudinal studies will predict loss. Uh, 
Um, and then people who've got big clinical databases, uh, even may potentially in trials, they'll look at these variants to see if they're associated with uh, smoldering-associated worsening or PIRA progression independent of relapse activity. So I think there's going to be a lot of work now um, validating these variants and these particular genes, you know, using other data sets. So that's going to be very exciting. What about therapeutics? Uh, I suppose pharmaceutical companies uh, with large neuroscience programs will undoubtedly start putting teams of their people onto the genes and the pathways these genes work in to see if there's a, they can find any druggable targets uh, to augment or inhibit them. Now, I've just done a quick screen myself. There's a database called the Drug Gene Interaction Database, and only one of these genes, dysferrolin, was potentially druggable, as it is a transporter, a membrane transporter. The other three genes didn't come up as being druggable. <clears throat> that doesn't mean to say that the pathway around those genes is not druggable. So um, I think you mustn't just assume because a particular gene doesn't look like it can be modified, its function can be modified by a drug, that it doesn't identify new biology. It's the pathway around that. So I think more work needs to be done on the actual pathways uh, these genes f function in. Just to say to develop a, um, a drugs to target, say, for example, dysferrolin or the other targets in the pathway, um, we'll need um, cell culture and animal models to screen and test drugs. You can't just develop a drug without having a way to t screen it. Um, and if these pathways do prove druggable, then any candidate molecules will have to be optimized. <laughs> and this is a big process for a molecule, for a, a therapeutic molecule to become a candidate drug, in other words, to go into clinical development in humans, uh, requires the molecules to be taken orally, usually. There's no point in having a small molecule that has to be given intravenously if you want to give it chronically in somebody with MS. It has to have a relatively long half-life, in other words, stay around in the body for quite a while. Uh, for this particular, uh, for these targets, it would have to cross into the brain. So it has to go across the blood-brain barrier. And obviously, it mustn't be associated with any liver or cardiac toxicity. And ideally, it shouldn't interact with other drugs. And it has to clear standard toxicology testing in at least two animal species. You know, they normally put it into rats, rabbits, uh, and dogs. Um, I know people are horrified that we still do toxicology testing, but you know that's what the regulators require. And there's no shortcut so all these processes um, are what I would call hurdles, and it's often stated that for every 10,000 potential drug candidates, only one molecule clears these hurdles and gets into humans. So there's lots of um, uh, potential uh, failing points along the path. Then once you've got a, the molecule through the what they call the preclinical, then the pharmaceutical company will need to do a phase one uh, uh, study, which is the first in human studies, and this typically has two phases, uh, what they call it a single ascending dose, where you just give one dose and up and kick to normal people and see what happens. And then you do a multiple ascending dose where you, in each individual, you actually increase the dose. Uh, we call these sad and mad. And these are typically done in healthy male volunteers. <laughs> Women are usually excluded because of the risk around pregnancy. And once these drugs are then shown to be safe in human volunteers, they'll they'll go and you can get a kind of idea what's a safe dose range. They then have to go into people with MS as part of either a one B, which is mainly safety, or directly into phase two, which is a typically dose finding uh, proof of concept trial. Uh, and these trials need uh, objective readouts. Um, you know, usually one or more biomarkers could be ones that are mentioned above uh, to get proof of biology. You know, the whole purpose of doing phase two is to de-risk a phase three program. In other words, for, for a company to invest, you know, literally billions of dollars in a development program, they have to be pretty confident um, that their drug is going to do something to, to MS. 
you know, once they clear the phase two hurdle, the company then has to design, you know, phase three, which are registration trials. These are usually two or three or more. They're typically large, very expensive, uh, and the trial designs and outcomes of these trials have to be discussed with the regulatory authorities. No point in doing a trial, and then the regulators say, "Well, that's not good enough. You know, we don't we don't believe the results." So um, the point of me telling you um, <laughs> about this process is that from the time of a potential treatment target identified, say today with Desferilin, to a licensed product. This whole process takes 15 and sometimes even more years. You know, MS is a disease where development is slightly slower, simply because the trials have to be longer. Uh, and there's all these pitfalls along the way. So there is uh, a very long time lag from a basic science discovery of potentially these four genes impacting on MS outcome, you know, smoldering disease. Um, so I think the point I'm trying to make is at this point in time, uh, the study, the study's findings will make very little difference in the sh uh, to people with multiple sclerosis. Now, the question I was really asked by email, does this mean saponamid won't work in slowing down my MS? So I did a search in this drug gene interaction database, and none of these identifiable, identifiable genes uh, appeared to interact with saponamid. The only genes that came up with the saponamid search was the S1P receptor 1 and 5, which we know that's where the drug binds to, and the uh, enzyme called CYP2C9, which is the enzyme that breaks down saponamide in the liver. And this is the actual enzyme that has two variants, a slow and a fast metabolizing variant. And this is what this uh, patient is having genetic tests for. So if this patient has two slow metabolizing variants, in other words, that you can't break down the drug, then they aren't, you're not allowed to take, uh, it's about a three, about two and a half to three percent of the population have the two slow metabolizing variants and <laughs> can't take saponamid. If you have one slow metabolizing and one fast metabolizing, you get the low dose saponamid. And if you have two fast metabolizing variants, you get uh, the high dose. So this is, a, this is actually an example of how genetics and variance in your genome uh, impact on it, treatment of MS. You know, the, it's got to do with drug metabolism. Um, so I don't think we can say um, anything about uh, whether these uh, new variants that affect MS outcome impact on the treatment effect of saponamide. And this may be something for uh, Novartis who developed saponamide to go back to their database. And I'm on the steering committee and I'll put this forward. If we've got genetic... Uh, data on this, which we do have, we could possibly dichotomize the symponomid population into those that have two copies of these, uh, you know, these these SNPs, and see if they do, if they do better or worse on symponomid. So there is a way uh, going back to um, you know trial databases to find out if the effect of symponomid uh, is there or not. Uh, finally, I just want to conclude. Uh, re with a section called reasoning by analogy, don't get disheartened by this study's findings. You know, even if one or two of the identified genes are validated in other studies uh, and do contribute to worse outcome, you may be able to nullify these effects, as I've said, with DMTs or maybe lifestyle changes. And a very recent example of this is type 2 diabetes mellitus. Now, type 2 diabetes mellitus is largely gen genetic. You know, so what dictates whether you get this disease is your genes. And there are lots of variants in the genome that, that do this. And despite this, a new study has just shown that moderate to vigorous intensity physical activity is very effective in preventing uh, diabetes mellitus. So this is an example of where a lifestyle intervention, exercise, 
okay, prevents the genes playing out uh, and causing a disease. So I would not be surprised if the same thing happens in MS. So this is why, don't get disheartened. This is a, uh, another time point for me to remind you to please adopt my marginal gains philosophy and to try and optimize all the little things that go into improving MS outcomes. And this includes your brain, metabolic and social health. So you have to focus on all the little things. And I put my typical figure of the holistic management of MS, the marginal gains hypothesis, uh, back on uh, into the uh, newsletter. Uh, and so focus on all these little things. Uh, finally, I'd just like to get some feedback from you. Uh, you know, are you interested in hearing newsletters like this about uh, important research findings? And is this understandable to you? Uh, is, or have I pitched that at a level that's not understandable? Um, anyway, I'll urge you to read the papers um, and then uh, you know, ask questions if you have questions and I'll try and respond to them in a timely manner. And then for those of you, just another nudge, please, if you can afford to subscribe, please subscribe. You know, all the income I make from the MS Selfie is going to a good cause, creating the uh, MS Selfie microsite for uh, mainly for people with recently diagnosed MS so they can find all the information that I discuss on the site in a curated and easy to find format. Thank you.